My guest today is the CEO of Predictive ROI, host of the top-rated podcast Onward Nation and author of the book Profitable Podcasting. Stephen Westner breaks down how to produce a successful podcast as well as anyone, and what I love about his approach is the attention that he places on all the details. He gets into the weeds and looks at all the various levers that we can pull as a podcaster to help make our show successful. The guy's written books on SEO and social networking, and he understands how to predict a return on the investment of the time that we put in. It's no wonder that the name of his company is Predictive ROI. This one is chocked full of nuggets of gold, and here are just a few of the highlights. Steven shares what he means when he says podcasting is like a Trojan horse for business. He gives us three steps for planting what he calls our flag of authority. He shares creative ideas that you may not have heard of when it comes to repurposing your content. And it goes far beyond creating a tweet or a video. We dive into what he calls the vital metrics, talking about the numbers and where our attention should be. And he shares his knowledge on search engine optimization and email list building techniques that are going to blow your mind. We talk about videos, we talk about weekly newsletters, and how to repurpose our podcast content to create a book. Steven tells us how many loyal fans we need to start seeing success. And I'll give you a clue, the number may surprise you. There's so much wisdom shared in this episode, and I can't wait to share it all with you. So enough waiting, let's jump into the conversation. Stephen Westner, thanks for being on For the Love of Podcast. You're very welcome, Billy. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to be here with you and your audience. So thanks. Absolutely. Well, let's let's start with entrepreneurship because it runs in your blood. Mm. Your grandfather immigrated from Istanbul with only a few dollars in his pocket and managed to become a business owner. And you grew up in the restaurant biz and most of your family have taken to the entrepreneurial pursuits. and. I relate to the restaurant biz being a big factor in my life and the success that I've had both in sales and interaction with other human beings. I mean, there's really nothing like the incredible opportunity that you get to interact with so many people in the restaurant biz. So I want to start there, man, because I totally relate to that. How did being immersed in that type of business help you in your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, gosh, there's all kinds of lessons out of that. So when I was 10 years old, started working in the family restaurants, both my uncles owned restaurants. So my uncle Bill, who's my godfather, his father, my grandfather is one who Peter Maronitis is the one who immigrated here from Istanbul and brought with him the restaurant trade, if you will. And so when I was 10, that was time for me to to get started working in the restaurants. And 10 and so, years old. I love it. 10 years old. And I remember one day my uncle saying to me, I think he came back into the kitchen and I was probably like taking a break or something to me. And I love my uncle. He's been one of my greatest mentors. And he said to me, he goes, what are you doing? And I said that I was all caught up. I was all caught up with my work. I was like washing dishes and keeping the kitchen clean and that kind of stuff. Big pots and pans, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, I, I said, I'm all caught up. So basically I don't have anything to do. And he looked at me and he said, sternly, but lovingly, there is always something to do in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. He goes, so I don't care if you're stocking shelves, wiping down shelves, mopping a floor, cleaning out the ice machine, picking up cigarette butts out of the parking lot, 
washing windows, cleaning fingerprints off the glass, restocking, whatever, vacuuming. There's always something to do in a restaurant. I was like, wow. So that's a lesson that I learned 38 years ago, and it still rings true today. So aside from work ethic, communication, teamwork, hustle, just all of that stuff are things that I learned early on as a kid and still pay dividends to me today. If you got time to lean, you have time to clean. (laughs) And so I totally with you because whatever business you're in, there's always something to do. In a restaurant, it's presence. It's all around you. There's the cleaning. There's And you just listed so many things right there. Another influence in your life, which I really, really appreciate, not only because I read this book 20 some odd years ago, but because I'm in a mastermind today Mm. where we're going through where I think we're on chapter 11 or 12 of Think and Grow Rich, which you highlight in your book and you've shared through interviews and other ways just what an influence Napoleon Hill has been on your life. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the lessons that you value most and what you actually apply in your day-to-day life from his teachings? Gosh. So there's a long list too. And I think for me, what one of the things I love the most about Think and Grow Rich, although so did 75 million other people, uh, right, right. you know, the best-selling book of all time with the exception of the Bible, is the fact that Napoleon in chapters one, two, three, and four take you through essentially like setting what your vision is, building up what your desire is, and just really kind of understanding it's sort of like you would in a business plan. You know, what is it that you want to accomplish? Once he gets into chapter five, then it's like all gloves are off and it's time to double down and in really understanding the auto-suggestion process. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting about that is so many people today talk about meditation, talk about affirmations, talk about positive reinforcement, all sorts of different iterations of it, and sometimes try to pass it off as their own. When the reality is, is that Napoleon Hill credits, rightly, Dr. Coulet, who discovered the placebo effect, all of that is in Think and Grow Rich. And it's like, you know, I'm getting better and stronger every single day. Say that to yourself, you know, 20 times with emotion and response, and people were responding to that better than they were with their medications. So it was discovered Way back then, that book was published in 1937. That's right. So, you know, people today are trying to pass off these discoveries as their own sort of intellectual property without giving credit where credit is due. And and so I think that Napoleon Hill's work is masterful about decide what it is that you want, stay supremely focused on that, do the work. And then good things happen to people who are willing to actually do the work. Give God the opportunity to bless your work. Mm. It doesn't just call, you know, fall as fruit from the sky. You actually have to put some skin in the game, but give them the opportunity to bless your work. And as you talk about in your book, most of the, in fact, all people who have had tremendous success, and this is from Napoleon Hill, they make decisions quickly and change them slowly. And that's just such a profound thought and reminder of the importance of being decisive and also following through on your decisions. I love that you highlight mindset a lot in the work that you do and the lessons that you teach. It's so vitally important as a podcaster to have the right mindset. And you talk about grit, perseverance, determination, doing the things necessary to give yourself, give your mind the armor that it needs to follow through. Talk a little bit about why mindset specifically 
has been such a through line in your life and your business and why you feel it's so important for other podcasters to really block the fear, like block the imposter syndrome. All those things are things that you talk about in your book. And I love all of those things. Wonder if you could share with the audience why they're so important. Sure, I'd be happy to, because if you don't get that right, you'll spend the next whatever period of time talking yourself out of what it is that you know you need to do. And you'll be spinning your wheels. There'll, there'll be the little voice or the little whatever sitting on your shoulder, whispering in your ear, Billy, who do you really think you are to do something so great, so bold, so audacious, so whatever, as have a podcast, build a business, do you know whatever that thing is. And so if we don't get our head right and actually truly be able to kick the imposter syndrome to the curb, first recognize it for what it is, and then be able to kick it to the curb, we will never send out the guest invitations. We will never name our show. We'll never have the guts to actually dial in with a great guest. We'll never continue to do that body of work, 10 episodes, 20 episodes, 50 episodes, whatever. We just won't. We will Mm. second guess ourselves all the way out of ever launching the show or building the show into something that it could truly be. And that's a real shame. You end up talking yourself out of your destiny mm-hmm. unless you get it right. How do you do it though? How do you kick that inner, because we have that inner voice, that inner dialogue that's pushing us down and telling us why we can't do something. How do you flick it off your shoulder and say, no, yes, I can do something and I will do something. Part of it is what you just said. So for many people, it is exactly the recipe. So listeners, exactly the recipe that Billy just gave you. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. For others, it'll be going back to chapter five in Think and Grow Rich and really understanding the power of auto-suggestion and what that repetition will do to your subconscious. Now, I know for some of your listeners that that's going to feel like, okay, that sounds like mystic, dark magic voodoo. I get it, but it is well-documented in Think and Grow Rich and many other studies since then about the power of the subconscious mind. So you can either choose to accept it and study it and understand how to harness the potential for you. Momentum is either working for you or against you. It is a law of the universe. So you can either harness that potential or act like it doesn't exist. So three-step recipe here. First is Billy gave you some great couple of ingredients there. Second, Napoleon Hill does it at length in chapter five and throughout the rest of Think and Grow Rich. So you have a script there. Third is, I would suggest somebody also consider getting some professional coaching. This is not something that I offer, just to be clear, but I would suggest that somebody feel like there are absolutely without a doubt, I have received coaching by some really, really great mentors and coaches. And I would suggest that others look for like a great mindset coach or a great business goal coach or something like that for somebody to really hold them accountable in their progress. Because if they don't get that right, they will feel like they're bumping their head up against a brick wall continuously. The coaching part is such an important part of that equation. You had the distinct privilege of being coached and mentored by Darren Hardy, who Mm. is prolific in his wisdom and his book, Compound Effect, and obviously with success and all of that. I think for anyone that doesn't know who he is, pick up the compound effect. But curious, while we're on the subject of coaching, what are the things that he taught you that you think have really been the most significant in your own growth and development as a human and as as an entrepreneur? Here again, there there are many. I mean, we could do an interview just on on those. I'm sure. I was, I was actually thinking the same thing, man, for sure. I'll give you one, though, that really sticks out and, and will always stick out because 
he was really calling me on my excuses. So er, early on in predictive. So this would have been, let's call that 2013-ish, somewhere around there, somewhere between 2012 and 2013. So it's been some time. But we were early on in our business. We started predictive back in 2009. So let's call it two, three years in, three, four years in. So he and I are having one of our monthly calls. We either got in together in person in San Diego, or we had monthly check-in calls and that kind of stuff and a lot of emails in between. And so I'm talking to him on the phone one day. I'm like lamenting, that's code for whining about, you know, Darren, I'm just not sure how big I want predictive to become. And I don't know if I want to add more people, if I want, you know, I was just kind of like grousing, that kind of stuff. Anyway, and and I said, you know, because I don't really consider myself a good manager of people. Mm-hmm. So I said my piece, right? Like expecting the magic to now come, you know, that Darren is going to fix all of these ills. <laughs> and actually, let me back up for a second. I said, because quite frankly, Darren, I kind of suck at it as far mm-hmm. as like managing people. So then I wait for the pause, right? And he says to me, you need to stop sucking at it. And I'm like, what? And I'm so like, I'm kind of back on my heels. He goes, stop giving me that excuse, that limiting belief that you're not any good at it. Get better at it. So stop mm-hmm. sucking at it. And I'm like, uh, okay. And now, now I'm like totally stripped down. Like he cut it to the core. He cut through all of the excuses and all of the stuff that I was putting up there. And I'm like, okay, just be better at it. Because he was 100% right. It was literally something I had stalled in my own belief system that I couldn't manage people or that I wasn't a good leader, which was completely false. We often formulate those beliefs in our brain and they're nine times out of 10, they're made up, they're fabricated. And sometimes it takes somebody rattling our cage like Darren did to help remind you that even if it were partially true, like it, it doesn't mean that that needs to be the excuse for you to not grow your business or not do the things necessary to have success. One of the biggest learnings and takings that I got from your book was this philosophy of the Trojan horse of Mm. business. Let's dive in on that. What do you mean when you say a podcast can be that Trojan horse? If one of your listeners has a podcast, it would be really smart for them to essentially put that podcast out in front of whatever their core business is. So let's say that that person runs a coaching business. I'm just going to make up a fictitious example. Okay. So let's say that that person runs a coaching business and they also have a podcast, John Smith's or Sarah Jones podcast, and it sits out in front of their coaching business. So where the podcast could really, really drive biz dev is for them to sit down and make a list of these are the 25 people who I would really love to have as clients. Uh, Dig down into the niche, dig down into the avatar. These are the 25 people who I would love to be able to have as clients. Mm -hmm. And then use the podcast as a way to open the door. Just like way back in the uh, Trojan War, right after a 10-year siege of the Greeks trying to get over the city walls and get through the city gates of Troy and failing miserably, they decided to leave and leave a peace offering on the beach, right? And it was the wooden Trojan horse. Now, the Trojans would have been wise to do a little bit of due diligence and probably would have found the Greek strike horse laying in the belly of the horse, but they wheel it inside and then they come out in the middle of the night and then they end up sacking the city. They open the doors and the rest of the army comes in. 
And that gave birth to the beware of Greeks bearing gifts, that little uh, line, which, which I love because I'm Greek. But, but anyway. Right, right, right. <laughs> so if somebody has a, a top rated podcast, it gives them the ability to completely change the game. So they reach out to their Dream 25 prospects. And now they're not a business owner looking for a new coaching client. They're a journalist. Mm. They're a media company. And they're a lot easier to say yes to. Now, what I'm not suggesting is if one of those Dream 25 prospects says yes, that it doesn't mean that now it's a self-fest. Have that person on, conduct a great interview, be smart, be gracious, be an excellent host, and then downstream from that interview, send them a framed quote of one of their golden nuggets, highlight them on LinkedIn, write an ebook with their smarts, you know, make sure they get a copy, feature them in a weekly email. And there's a litany of things that can be done with slicing and dicing that content so that six or seven months later, you loop back to Sarah, who's on your Dream 25, and you say, hey, Sarah, thanks again for being a great guest on my show. I really loved it. You shared some great insights and wisdom with my audience. It was off the charts. My team and I were just re-listening to that episode. And you know what? When you said X, that made us think about Y. And you know what? We do Y really, really well here. Is there a day or time next week we could sit down and talk about that? And never once did Sarah ever feel like she was a prospect. And now you have a great open door for two business people to sit down and chat. And that's what your podcast delivered for you. It's a huge difference between going in cold and sending some salesy direct message or other correspondence. You're a media company, as you said, you're a journalist. And I love the Trojan horse analogy. I also think it's really important to point out that one of the things you recommend is as soon as the Trojan horse is behind the castle walls or within the castle walls, don't just storm out and, and start selling immediately. I think your advice is really sage, which is you're saying that you still need to have some tact and some social grace and, and nuance to the way in which you present yourself. And part of it comes back to this concept that you talk about, which is making sure your guests feel like VIPs, which mm. you kind of alluded to this. It's almost like they're rock stars, right? I like what you do on the front end, but I really like what you do on the back end, which you've just shared. What else can you do? And we could talk front end or back end, meaning pre-interview or post-interview. I want to get a little bit more granular. What else can you be doing to help your guests feel like VIPs? I know tweets and things like that, but what else? Would love yeah, to hear. I think it should be meatier than that. In tweets, sure. Long form LinkedIn posts and they're tagged in, absolutely. Facebook campaigns that they're tagged in, sure, absolutely. But I think you need to have a mix of both short form and long form content. So for example, if I'm interviewing a guest and that person happens to be one of our Dream 25, I'm going to take the nuggets of that content, and I might turn that into a checklist. Mm. And I might now have that available for download on our website. So that serves us really, really well, right? Because we're providing a super helpful resource to our audience, maybe even put it, make it gated. So we're building our email list at the same time. But then also, I'm going to let the guests know, hey, you know what? This stuff was so good. Not only were there four or five golden nuggets, but we were able to take each of those nuggets, bust them into smaller nuggets, and we turned it into this rock and awesome checklist. Thank you. Or if that person was just awesome in the 45-minute interview, reach back out to him and say, hey, you know what, Sarah, I was wondering because of your brilliance, your depth of knowledge on topic X within this niche, could we teach a webinar together? And now she's thinking, oh my gosh, how awesome is that? Now I get to teach a webinar in front of their off or in front of their audience. 
Right. And now you record it and send it out to your audience. Right. And now Sarah is like even more complimented and not falsely. Right. She's got chops. And now you've given her another way to share her brilliance with your audience. So look for ways to combine short form. Sure. Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all of that is great, right? You want to pile up the notifications in their social inboxes. That's awesome. But then look for ways that you can create longer form content that could be used to build your list. And then also it's like, wow, they turned it into a checklist. They turned it into an ebook. They turned it into a they want me to teach a webinar. What? That's awesome. They want me to speak an event. Heck yeah, I'm all in for that, right? So look for these special VIP opportunities because they definitely exist. And at the same time, you're deepening, you're strengthening the relationship with that person. You're right. The short form, they serve a purpose and you shouldn't ignore those. But the other side of that is these long form I mean, how amazing would it be to get a speaking opportunity because you were a guest on a podcast? I mean, that's gold right there. One of the things you help your clients do is really, as you describe it, plant their flag in the dirt in terms mm-hmm. of their point of view and their brand. What exactly do you mean when you say that? Okay. So actually, I wonder if this would be a good opportunity to do this. Let me see. If I, if I switch my screen here, tell me if you can still see this, Billy. Can you still see this? Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, the, it's uh, the moon, right? Yep. I wonder if it's going to be, if I write like this, is it backwards with the mirroring or can you read that? Okay. Uh looks like uh niche. Okay, great. Or right. niche. It depends on who, who's, who's saying it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what your question made me think of this because there are three essentials to planting your flag of authority. That's what you're referring to. Okay. okay. And the first one is niche, meaning it's very difficult to have a podcast that tries to teach everything to everybody, to try to boil the ocean. That's right. Right? You're much better off in going a thin slice that really serves your expertise. Where do you have a depth of expertise, listeners? And my guess is that you you grew up in an industry, you have a depth of expertise in a particular area. So double down on that niche. Once you have some clarity around who it is that you want to serve, then you need to get some clarity around your point of view or POV, which means why do you feel so compelled to serve that niche? What are some of the recommendations that you find yourself making over and over and over again? What are some of the stories that you share often? What is the lens that you look through to the world at, right? And and so all of that is guiding your business, your recommendations, how you interact with customers and clients. That ought to also direct your content. So these first two, niche and point of view, this really sets sort of the stones where they should be set in order to that you're creating the right content in the right space for the right people. And then the third is don't be a one trick pony. So what I mean by don't be a one trick pony is that oftentimes somebody thinks that, okay, I'm going to launch a podcast and it's going to be awesome. And that's the only thing I need to do. And the reality is, is that's not the case. And so that's great if you double down on being a great podcaster. That's awesome. Now think about how am I going to take that content? How am I going to slice and dice it? And how, I gonna, and how am I going to go to my audience with a channel agnostic strategy? How am I going to use this episode with Billy? How am I going to use that? And I'm going to turn it into Instagram quotes, or I'm going to turn it into Instagram IGTV segments, or how am I going to put that out on YouTube? How am I going to put that out on long form LinkedIn posts? How am I going to take this 45 minutes 
of you asking me questions and how am I going to slice and dice that into 60 pieces of content across seven different channels? That's right. And most people don't think that. They think, oh, I'm going to launch a podcast. Now money's going to just rain from the heavens. And that's not how it works today. So in order for somebody to plant their flag of authority in very solid ground, they need a niche, they need a unique point of view, and they need to not be a one trick pony and just relying on one channel. Gold right there, my friend, gold. And another thing that I really, I think would be a nice thing to dovetail into is once you've established those three pieces, and I really like the not being a one trick pony part because it is so often the misconception that you could just go start making a podcast and then that's that's it it's done it's it's so much more than that and i really like the concept of the cornerstone content and this baseline content that could be repurposed throughout so many different channels and mediums the direction i want to go right now is into the metrics and what you call vital metrics and you mm. break this up it starts with the unique website visitors and it ends with business and podcast revenue and there's four steps in the middle of those two Wondering if you could kind of break down why it's important to look at the metrics and the way in which you suggest, and if you could kind of just give us a flavor of step-by-step step what the audience should be thinking about when they start with the traffic to their website, what should they then think about next? Yeah. In, in fact, let's go one level up. And so we've added now a sixth in there, just, just kind of going backwards one more step. And, and so what I mean by that is think about first vital metric number one is how is your audience growing? macro, how is your audience growing holistically every month? That's a variety of things that gets plugged into that. So that could be your podcast. It could be LinkedIn connections. It could be Facebook likes, what, whatever, Instagram followers. So how is your audience as a whole growing? Okay. At the macro level. Macro. Got it. Okay. Yep. Second piece is uh, you're exactly correct. Website traffic. So how is our website traffic increasing or decreasing on a monthly basis? Super important. Third is by what percentage and is it going up or down? Are we converting our website traffic into email opt-ins? By how much up or down is our email list changing on a monthly basis? Because you're going to have unsubscribes too. So hopefully you're getting fewer unsubscribes and you're adding more people too, right? So that your list is actually growing. And just real quick on the opt-in is the Correct me if I'm wrong, is the goal somewhere between 6 and 13% or is that like a good range of what we're looking at for opt-ins based on traffic? Yes. So 6 to 13% is ideal, especially when you're doing things like unique popovers that somebody can subscribe right from the popover, or you've got some really great resources, getting the headline right, the content right, asking for email address only. You should absolutely see between 6 and 13%. If you're not seeing that, because you're not doing like popovers, you're not doing any sort of special campaign, but you're directing people to a resource page, you should be at least seeing two to 4%, two okay. to 4%. If you're getting less than 2%, then there's likely a content problem. So I would encourage your listeners who are getting less than 2% to go into Google Analytics, go into the behavior flow, and which is in the behavior chunk of the analytics. So it goes ABC, you know, acquisition, behavior, conversion. So go into the B, behavior, check out behavior flow, and then you'll be able to see where people are dropping off mm. and, and just visually see the flow of your website because that might indicate there's a content problem. So after you've analyzed is our email opt-ins going up or down and by how much? Next is leads and proposals. So the next piece is leads. So by what percentage 
Are we actually generating leads from email opt-ins? Email opt-ins are not leads. That's right. Many people think that they are. It's like, oh, I had 100 people opt in for my Wedge widget off of Facebook, <laughs> and now I have 100 leads. No, you have 100 email addresses. Now you need to nurture those people so they actually raise their hand. And Billy says, yeah, n- hey, hello, I am a lead, right? Until that happens, that person is a suspect. Mm. Right. And, and so oftentimes people get confused thinking that they d- built this campaign and generated all these leads. No, until somebody actually raises their hand and says, Hey, I'm interested in talking with you about that coaching package. Now they're a lead. Right. Okay. So, by what percentage of our list, what percentage became actually bona fide leads? And that should be a, a conversion rate. And then, what percentage of leads asked for proposals? And then what percentage of proposals closed into sales? And then what is the dollar value of that? So if somebody knits all of that together, then they'll have a a pretty good dashboard to understand what they need to kind of dial in better. I love the way you're looking at this and it's, it's math. It really does come to being math and all too often, especially if you're a creative type, your mind doesn't go to the numbers or to the metrics. Your mind might be on something else. And I think it's really important to pull back the covers that are in front of your eyes and actually look at the numbers and do a self-evaluation and assessment of what's not working. I want to double click on the value prop or the value that you provide that will get somebody to opt in because I've seen your site and you have so many valuable pieces of content Mm -hmm. that inspire people to say, yes, I want that. And yes, I want that. And I, and I'm already, I mean, I, I want that and I want that. I went to your website and so I'm on your list. What's your advice? Because there's any number of ways you can get inspired people, but what have you found to be the most successful way to create content that people actually want to get and they will give their email address? And you mentioned only email address, which is, hmm. I think, an important distinction. Yeah, actually a little bit of more depth there. I'm glad that you said that. So because oftentimes people ask me, well, why only email address? And, and, it, and it isn't you know, my hyperbole or conjecture or me making that stuff up. Dr. Flint McLaughlin, who runs Mech Labs, and they run hundreds of experiments a week, said to me in an interview, he said, Stephen, every single field of information that you add, in addition to email address, will reduce conversion rate on that form by 50%. So if the conversion rate was 4% with email address only, and now I'm asking for Billy's first name, Mm-hmm. Now it's two, right? So I, I cut my opportunity in half. So he's like, whatever information you're asking, make sure that it's actually for the value and benefit of the person requesting the information. If it's for my benefit so I can be a better marketer, well, that's not fair to the person who's opting in for the thing, right? So if I can serve them better because they give me their first name, fine, but I better be able to deliver on that promise. So just a little bit there. When I spent some time with Avinash Kashik, who's a digital marketing evangelist at Google, we had a similar you know, conversation about like, what should we create? And, and, and of course his simple answer was, and it's a profound answer, although it's simple, is ask. Mm-hmm. Literally either put something on your website where you ask and say, hey, we're about to, we're getting ready to launch a resources library. And what do you think about these topics? Or would you suggest something different? Or go to your email list and say, hey, we're going to build out a resources library. If we could be more helpful in these various areas, which would you choose? And then test, ask, and then test. People will vote 
with their email address if it's on point. How do you test? What's the process there for testing? Okay. So let's say that you already have an email list of a hundred or 200 people, or maybe several thousand people, whatever. So I would go to that email list and say, kind of getting some direction first, I would say, Hey, we're thinking about building out a resources library. And we're thinking about five or six topics as our first ebook. So if you could vote on one of those and which one you think would be the most helpful to you, given your current business situation, whatever, which one would that be? And probably, you know, you'll get maybe 15 to 20% of the people to respond and give you their vote. Awesome. So then go build that thing. So now you go build the thing. And now, you know, people who are already on your list, you don't need their email address again. You don't need to make it difficult. You already have. So you don't need to have them opt in again. Make it simple. So post it on a private page on your website. Give them a direct link to it. Go back to them and say, hey, thanks very much for your input. We went and built the thing. Now the thing's available. You're already on our list. You don't need to opt in. If you want to download it, here it is. And go get it. So then they go and download it and then evaluate that in your Google Analytics and see how many people actually got it and how many people took the time to go download your free PDF. Now you've got some decent metrics. Now you can decide if you're going to do a Facebook campaign or if you're going to put it in a popover, whatever. If nobody downloaded it, then maybe you got some bad survey data. There was some sort of incongruency, but you want to have a double check there of survey data downloads before you start spending money on like Facebook campaigns for people to go and download it. Mm, that's really smart to do that in advance. One of the things that you, speaking of doing in advance, before Profitable Podcasting, you wrote two other books, one on search engine optimization, one on viral social networking at the time. We now are in the social media days. <laughs> so, so to your own admission, it, it, both books have a lot of great stuff, but the world has changed. It's changed. The, the world has changed, but you had all of that built within your own knowledge bank that you had prior to getting into podcasting, which has really helped you. So I want to move up upstream from our conversation and talk about traffic, specifically show notes, maybe not specifically show notes, but show notes being one component that will drive organic traffic. And then in addition to that, what are the other ways that a podcaster can be thinking about actually getting unique visitors to their website to begin with? Excellent question. So I'll put that in the category of how do you build an audience from scratch? right? Like when you're just starting out, and you don't have a big paid media budget, you know, how are you going to uh, drive traffic and, and, and subscribers? And this might sound maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but let's go back to planting the flag in the niche. Mm -hmm. So if you've decided on a niche and you're going to plant the flag really, really deep, and you're going to interview people from that niche, and you're going to build an audience around that niche, the, the people who you invite to be guests on the show are going to be more likely to share your content with their communities, with their networks, because the niches are aligned, mm -hmm. right? And then when that happens, they're going to, uh, that audience that you do attract is going to be spot on, right? Mm -hmm. Because the niches align. So the, the very first thing, like the, the ante of all of this that somebody should be doing is when they invite a guest on the show and then after the show, they make it super, super simple to share. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't feel one-sided. You want to highlight Billy's or Sarah's golden nuggets that came out of that conversation, packagitize them into Facebook posts, LinkedIn posts, do the graphics, like give them stuff 
that is yeah. really easy for them to share. And then be sure to tag them in all of your stuff too. So their inbox on social lights up a little bit with all the notifications. And so then it is because it's really easy for them to share it. And then it's not self-aggrandizing for them to share it if they're sharing your stuff. That's okay. Right. So, so that's absolutely without a doubt the first thing. Frictionless is what I like. Make it as frictionless as possible. Right. Uh, oh, that's that's a great way to say it. Frictionless. I like that. I'm totally stealing that from you. Anyway. Do it, brother. Do it, brother. So I'm honored. Believe me, I've learned, I've learned a lot from you. So if I could, if I could give you one word, go for it. That's, that's great. This also might sound like really would that actually work? Then uh, go to your list at least three times a week with helpful content. So don't go to your list three times a week and pitching a coaching package again. You know, kind of using that coaching business example. But go to your list every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Pull a golden nugget out of a particular episode, highlight it and why you think it's valuable, and then give them a link to where they can go and listen to it and where they can subscribe to your podcast across whatever channel, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, right? So it makes it very, very simple. So put it right in their inbox three times a week. So don't just rely on, make sure that it's really easy to subscribe. So your listeners might not realize that when they get a new subscriber, Oftentimes, the app on their phone will go and back download hundreds of episodes. Whether they listen to them or not, they just auto download all of those episodes. So, you know, with every new subscriber, let's say they have 50 episodes out, every new subscriber could represent 50 downloads. You get 10 subscribers in a day, that's 500 downloads. That's that's a really interesting point. In, in right? A, yeah, very. There's a really, really long tail to podcasting. So the key is that when you're emailing your list three times a week, you're giving them great golden nuggets where they can listen to the current episode, but you also need to make it super easy of, you know, subscribing to the podcast. Right. Right. Then you'll be able to start to see your downloads go up month over month because you're making it so simple and your list loves you because three times a week you're helpful in their inbox. When you think of mistakes people are making and you just highlighted one, that's not necessarily a mistake, but just a misunderstanding. Mm. But what is some of mis- either a mistake or missed opportunity that someone has when it comes to say show notes, for example, or some other way? Cause you do have that SEO background. I'm wondering if there's any nuggets or ideas or suggestions you could share that will help soup up the, the, the show notes that somebody puts on their page so that it will naturally attract people. Cause you've given a lot of great advice to use the mailing list, which I love wondering what they could be also doing proactively as they put content on their website. With show notes in particular, they need to be meaty. And this is going to sound a little bit silly, but not too meaty. And, and here's what I mean by that. So they need to be somewhere between 500 and a thousand words. If you're going to optimize those for organic search, they need to be about 500 to 1,000 words of truly meaty content. Include some images so that you can take advantage of alt text, include a number of different paragraphs so you can take advantage of headers, but you need about 500 to 1,000 words. Now, some people might think, oh, for Pete's sake, Stephen, seriously, how in the world am I going to write 500 to 1,000 words? Well, in this interview that Billy and I are doing, if either one of us was to get a transcript at the end, it'd probably be close to 8,000 words. So if you're doing a good interview and you're asking your guests great questions, like Billy's asking me great questions, there's going to be 500 to 1,000 words of really good meat and potatoes that Google's going to love. 
Okay. So that's, that's the first thing. Make sure that the show notes themselves are Google friendly and following the best practices of SEO and spending an afternoon on Google, Googling SEO best practices, you'll be able to find some. And, and here's what's, what's funny. In, in actually, uh, Tim Cameron Kitchen, who runs Exposure Ninjas, one of the UK's best SEO firms, when he and I were doing an Encore interview a few weeks ago for Onboard Nation, and then he and I just taught a webinar last week. So he's been in the space uh, quite some time and he's built a team of 98 people. And so they do some great work. Anyway, he said, you know, Stephen, for as much as I would like to think that SEO has changed a lot, it really hasn't. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the white hat principles that worked in the early 2009, 2010, 2011, that stuff still works today. 800 or 500 to 1,000 words, keywords that matter, well-formatted page titles, meta descriptions, headings, alt text, links that are relevant to go places, you know, so that that's a good way to frame up the show notes and then to boost listenership. Don't give it all away. So mm, yeah, you yeah. want to have 500 to 1000 words, but you want to write it in such a way that's like, holy bananas, I got to freaking listen to that episode. That's a really good point. Right? Be creative about it. Tell a story. Yeah, and and one of the things that I have gone back and forth on and I kind of landed on, you know, you give them a, a taste of what's going to be said. And maybe it's either in the form of a question or maybe it's said in such a way that it's going to pique their curiosity. It's like people watch the news because they say, and coming up, there's a guy that's going to jump off the, and then it's at the end of the newscast. And you don't want to totally go that far necessarily, but there is something to be said for teasing the audience in a way that will inspire them to listen. I think that's a, a really good point. The other point that I just got to triple click on is you know, so much is in your control, like, which when I say that, what I mean is you, you suggest, hey, go to Google, search engine, search engine optimization. It sounds obvious. They don't take the initiative to go out. And to your point, there's so much information out there. Some of it might even be old information that's still accurate. And so it's in your hands. Do the due diligence, do the research. Yes, there's experts, but those experts, they put most of their information on line. And so you could find it. I want to bring up a few topics and I want to see which way you want to go. These are some areas that you highlight as you're building your platform are really, really important to create a, as you say, a nation of true fans. So one is creating audio versions or video versions of your audio and posting them to YouTube. One is a newsletter and another is to write a book. And you already highlighted the book piece, which we could talk about that, but and we could talk about all three, but which of those stand out as really, really important to help really further establish your brand and your authority as a, a podcaster and an expert in your domain? I think all three of them. So let's go through all three because I think we can address all three pretty quickly. Like right now, we're obviously recording video and audio at the same time, which is super smart. You know, about 90% of all podcasters are recording video at the same time that they're recording audio. Why? So audio is obviously great for the long form audio channels like iTunes and such, but do I think that you should take a 45-minute podcast interview and put it out on YouTube? No. But I do think you should take the five or six golden nuggets that are two or three-minute clips of your guest, put those out onto IGTV, put those out onto Facebook, put those out onto long-form LinkedIn posts. Absolutely, you should be doing that, right? So that's a great way to take video and put them into the platforms where video really matters as a way to drive downloads and subscriptions to the podcast. 
as far as emailing like uh, a newsletter, I think was the second one that you were talking about, right? Yep. So yeah, I think that you should go to your audience on Sunday with a long form newsletter. I think that that's where you can recap the week. I think that's where you could insert an additional video that keeps you from being a one trick pony. That certainly could be on YouTube. Maybe it's a 10 minute video. So maybe it's video and maybe it's a promotional thing down at the bottom. Maybe you have a course offering, a webinar coming up or whatever, but three different chunks on a Sunday, for sure you should do that. Give me the third one again. Book. Profitable podcasting. And, and thank you for your praise of the book. That's very kind of you. What some people don't know is that there are seven chapters within Profitable Podcasting that actually started as solo casts on Onward Nation. So I recorded those as solo casts. And then when I interviewed Wendy Keller for episode 116, and she goes, hey, I think you should write a book on this. I'm like, what? Really? That sounds awesome. How do I do that? Uh, you know, what process should I follow? And then once we mapped out the table of contents, I'm like, wait a minute. I've already done solo casts on a lot of these topics, right? So I was able to repurpose that solo cast script and turn it into a chapter. Is it verbatim? Of course not. But like 90% of the heavy lifting was already done. So if you want to write a book, use your podcast to help you write the book. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and it just really streamlines things. That's so powerful, man. And anyone listening, you know, I think often we make things harder than they need to be. And the answer is often right in front of us. And it could be something that we've already done. And I love the idea of using your solo cast, but you've also suggested, as you've said, you know, interviews that you have with other people. One of those people that you had an interview with, and you actually did highlight more verbatim was Linda Hollander and her approach to sponsorship. Wondering what the major takeaways or advice or thoughts that you have on, on that realm in the sponsorship world? Hmm. Well, what we're hearing from prospective sponsors is they want niche opportunities. And th this isn't in the book, but it, it happened after the book. So I know fellow agency owners who have podcasts that serve very, very niche audiences, and they're getting hundreds, hundreds, Billy, hundreds of downloads per month. We're not talking about a million downloads a month. We're talking about hundreds of downloads per month, but because they're in a niche and deep in the niche and all of their guests are deep in the niche and their guests align with their dream 25, but they also represent prospects for like software firms and that kind of stuff who want to sell through to the guests mm. as well as the audience. So it doesn't matter that the numbers are not millions. They're turning those into six figure sponsorships. Wow. Because niche, there is gold in going narrow. So please, listeners, do not try to boil the ocean. Do not try to be the 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 next whatever big name because you want you know ten million downloads a month because you think you're going to ride off in the gravy train of really lucrative advertising spends. Will some people do that? Yes. Is that common? No. The people who are winning today in the world of sponsorships have a very niche audience. They know exactly who listens and they have a depth of relationship and intimacy with their listeners and sponsors want that all day long. I love it, man. And, and you, you, you highlight in your book that you don't need hundreds of thousands or even millions of downloads or listeners. You need 100 to 1,000 loyal fans. And to your point, if those fans and your audience really reside into a specific demographic or niche or space, you now have very clear value that you're providing to a 
potential sponsor. I want to end with talking about, you know, we've shared so much and you, and thank you so much for what you've shared. It's a lot to think about how many moving parts. And, in, and even in your book, you say, Hey, this is a recipe. It might appear complicated, but don't worry. You know, you don't need to do all the levers all at once. There's a lot to it. And once you get more and more used to it, the easier it'll become. One of the things you've done is you built a, a delegated and automated system where you use team members and people to help you within your organization. And frankly speaking, that's an area where I'm also building a team around what I'm doing because I was drowning in things to do. I know what I need to do. And clearly there is no shortage of things you can do. Wondering if you could talk a little bit about delegation and automation. And the other piece that I'll, that I'll say before you start is really, really, really love the part in your book where you talk about what do you want to be world famous for? or Where's your skill? Where are your talents? world-class is, I think, the way you put it. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. So I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. I mean, we all have our own set of unique God-given talents. Mine happen to be in the area of sales and biz dev. And uh, my business partners, it is all about strategy. Where his mind goes and thinks is like, oh my gosh, you were orbiting a distant moon of awesome. Like, how did you think of that? And it's just his gift. Or Catherine on my team, who's our director of operations, she's all about managing the contract and deliverables and schedules and time. It's like stuff that would make me want to poke a pencil in my eye, but it is her gift and she is excellent at it. So my point is, is that your listeners ought to ask themselves, literally, what aspect of the business do they love doing? And actually comes easy for them because it truly is their gift. They have an abundance of God-given talent in that. Now, could I do project management? Could I get into our project management system and do it? Yes. And it would be painful and I would hate it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Catherine loves it all day long. Could she do sales? Yeah. But she would hate it because it's not her gift. It's my gift. Right. And so that's where we're great compliments to one another. So my point is, is that your listeners ought to have a very candid and honest conversation with themselves and understand what it is that they truly love to do in the business. Mm. And then the answer is really simple. Delegate every single freaking thing that is not on that list. And so that's what I have done within Predictive. Every single business owner that I know who has built and scaled something that they can really be proud of said, you know what? I was great at sales and I could do those other things, but I wasn't great. I delegated every single thing that was not sales. I respected my lane and I got teammates in place where I could respect their lanes and I got the heck out of their way and let them do their magic. The business owner that's like, ah, you know, I'm going to do sales and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do the chief bottle washing kind of thing and I'm going to cook the meat and I'm going to slice the meat and I'm going to wash the dishes and I'm going to take the orders and I'm going to do the cash cash register and I'm going to balance it out at the end of the day and I'm going to do inventory. And the person who does all of that, you know, they may build a successful business, but it will always be small. Mm, and, and there's nothing a matter of that either, to be clear. But typically what ends up happening is somebody who has a small business laments that they wanted something different, but couldn't figure out how to get there. Love it, man. Drop the mic moment. And what I'll say is that the end of your book highlights the power of not giving up. You even end by saying, don't ever quit. And you have a great story about Sylvester Stallone. There's always a way to get something done. You just have to keep changing your approach, I think is the through line there. You quote Don Yeager who says, greatness is available to all of us. 
if you're willing to do the common things uncommonly well. And I think focus on those things that you do uncommonly well, delegate and empower other people to focus on the things that they do uncommonly well and create a predictable engine behind your podcast. Don't think that you doing everything is the right approach. And I'm giving myself this <laughs> less this talk every single day and I'm working toward, I'm still in the infancy of my overall trajectory, but that is a big part of where I'm headed. So I just got to say thank you. And Steve, Predictive ROI, I want you to talk just a little bit about that before we go, but I just gonna say predictiveroi.com, go to the website. There's so much value packed content there. And you could also listen to your podcast. We barely touched on that and didn't even touch mm. on it. Onward Nation, which is a fantastic podcast. Check that out. You're on all the major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, which is where I found you, Instagram. Predictive ROI for Facebook is your handle. Steven Westner is your handle at Twitter. And if there is a O before the E. So I, I guess, is that a silent O would you call that? Yep, exactly. Okay. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And then you can find him on LinkedIn. He was gracious enough to come on my show today. So I'm so excited for that. But wanted to give you the last word on predictive ROI. If any, and if there's anything I missed in terms of where people could find you. Perfect summary. Thank you very much for that. If there happen to be any questions beyond what Billy and I talked about, please hit me up on the channels that he mentioned. I'd be happy to answer any questions or concerns. And if you're looking to move your business onward to the next level faster, then drop us a line at Predictive. And we'd love to talk with you about the Authority Sales Machine Sprint and how we help business owners just like you do that. And until we have an opportunity to cross paths, I wish you well and move onward with gusto. Steven, thank you for being on For the Love of Podcast. Thanks for the invitation, Billy. It was great to be here. Stop. Don't leave yet. If you made it this far, please listen for just one more minute because I have something to tell you. I can't tell you how much it means that you took the time to listen, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So what do I want to tell you? I want to let you know that I'm here to serve you. If you have suggestions, ideas, possible guests, show topics, anything you'd like me to cover on future episodes, please let me know by sending feedback to for the love of podcast forward slash feedback. I want this to be a two-way street, not just me talking. I want to know what you want from this show. Ultimately, you will help decide what this show is and how it best serves you to make better podcasts. If you like this show, let me be blunt. The best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platforms. This is so important and it will help so much, especially during these early days as the show gets started. One more ask please consider sharing this show with your friends on social media to help spread the word. All right, that's it. Until next time, please remember everything we do, we do it for the love of podcasts.